Hi there, I'm Anna. And I'm Anton. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Scalpel. Now, these technologies are very expensive, like you said, require a lot of training and are emerging. We, we note that you also have done some aid work with the doctors assisting in South Pacific Islands and imagine that that would be worlds apart from the kind of robotic surgery you're doing at, at RBW and Wesley. So how is the work there uh, different to what you're doing in theatres in Australia and, and what, what can you bring for that, to the table for that kind of aid work? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's total chalk and cheese. I think I actually like doing the days of work because I actually get to go back to my grassroots and be a general surgeon again. Um, but, yes, one of my most bizarre situations is when I was in Papua New Guinea in the Highlands, you know, introducing laparoscopic surgery, doing a bare-bones basic APR, and literally the next day I did a robot APR at Royal when I returned. Wow. <laughs> so it is very chalk and cheese. But, oh gosh, how does it compare? It, it doesn't compare. It's their worlds apart. I, I you know, I, I, I do the work because I enjoy the work. I, um, it makes you appreciate so much more of what you've got here. It also brings you back to your grassroots. You've got to remember how everything works and why we do what we do. Um, and, you know, you, it, you've got to take away everything that you've got in terms of technology here and still be able to help your patients uh, overseas as well. So, gosh, I said, I mean, in my brain, I'm thinking of my operating room in Papua New Guinea <laughs> compared to my operating room in, in, in Royal, where in Papua New Guinea I had someone sticking their, their head over the open window who was the guy who ran the maintenance for the generator that was running the power to my theatre. Oh, and I, I want to turn it off because I want to go home. <laughs> You're in the middle of an operation. You can't do that. <laughs> um, oh gosh, I don't, I don't even know where to start to, to, um, to try and explain the differences. I think what we're hearing over here is that you really do need to know all of those skills that you uh, went up through your training with basic suturing and all that. It's not all going to be replaced by robots at some stage. It's always going to be a place for that. And the thing is you do so long training. I mean, your training is so long. You learn all these sort of broad skills as a general surgeon. And, yeah, you do you do lose a lot of them if you're not using them. And so this is something nice where you actually get to use all the skills that you've been, you know, trained to do. Yes. Um We've done trips over in uh, in the Solomons where literally we were sent over just sort of as an emergency service because the only surgeon who was available in this particular area of the Solomons was unwell. Um, and so we showed up and literally what had happened is they put an ad in the paper to say that a surgical service was available on this date. Show up faster. Wow. And... <laughs> There were people coming out the doors. Uh, I went over, my husband's a surgeon as well. Um, and so there was my husband and I, we had two anaesthetists with us and we found anyone we could find who had any medical knowledge whatsoever to come and help us out. <laughs> Conveniently, there was a couple of medical students there on their elective, oh. fantastic. <laughs> Everyone's hands were on deck. <laughs> just to even just see and sort uh, what was there. 
and there's things that we can do and there's things that I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And um, and my husband's actually a breast endocrine surgeon, but as a general, so, uh, as a colorectal and a breast endocrine, it actually it complements quite well. The other thing is through our general training, like my husband had done a lot of urology, I'd done vascular, so we could cover a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. But there were things that, as I said, I, you know, urolo- uh, like um, we did have a urologist coming to follow us, so anything that we thought, you know what, there's a bladder, uh, if there's a bladder stone, yes, I can get into a bladder, I can fix it, I can repair it. But probably the urologist who's coming next month probably should be doing that, not me. So we did try to provide it a little bit that way as well. Um, but, but yeah, it's, a, it's coming back to your grassroots. There's no CT scanner. There was an x-ray machine. You could tell whether they had TB or not. And that's about oh, well, it. That's something. <laughs> um, you could tell if they had malaria. So they did have, they could do blood films to look for malaria. Uh, the blood transfusion was literally a chair where the family member comes in and we just give whole blood. So you knew that you didn't want to lose a lot of blood because, you know, you don't have that luxury of just going, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll just give them this. Um, I said that particular trip was the one that there was two diathermy pads. Mm-hmm. And so everything was just washed and reused, um, you know, and you just made things up as, as you went. Um, there was parts of a laparoscopic machine. There was parts of a uh, endoscopy or colonoscopy machine there. But if you put them together, they actually work together so that you could get things working. So we did do a couple of black places there. The original intent was because there was supposed to be someone on the ground to uh, that, that we could help, you know, we could teach them. We were supposed to go over there as a teaching sort of a thing. Well, that had been always the intent of Daisy. This one had been slightly different. Okay. Um, but without a CT scanner, there was a lot of people in hospital with abdominal pain abdominal pain that they got put on antibiotics because this kind of really wasn't anything else and you survived or you didn't. So to even just clear the wards, just to do a bunch of diagnostic laparoscopies and say, yes, you have a problem or no, you don't have a problem and just clear out that way. That was one thing that we did do a fair bit of as well. Um, sorry, I forgot my train of thought. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you. I, I guess on that, on that note of the um, laparoscopic um, use, when you um, – I, I did read in one of the brochures for the DAISY program that you did teaching of laparoscopic um, techniques in those communities. How was that, teaching um, local health professionals how to use a laparoscopic device? Yeah, so you're right. I've done a fair few different trips, and so and each trip has its own aim. We just really try to aim to see what the local community wants from us. Um, it was up in Papua New Guinea that there was a team of surgeons up there who were incredibly motivated, and they wanted to, to learn laparoscopy. One for the obvious benefits for their patients. They also wanted to. There was no. There's no laparoscopy in the highlands of Papua New Guinea at all, mm-hmm. and so they also. It was interesting actually because the surgeon on the ground wanted to attract better doctors to his hospital so that he could run a better service. And he said the way he wanted to do that was if you get them there as a trainee, they often stay. And he wanted to bring laparoscopy to this place purely so often so that he could attract the trainees because the trainees would then want to come and then he could develop a better health system for his community. It, It was a really interesting philosophy around it. Um, and so, yes, so my, so my hospital, as in the Wesley, uh, donated all the equipment 
So we sent over a full stack um, and a whole bunch of instruments um, and uh, and sort of reusable ports and things like that. Um, I went over with um, my anaesthetist um, as well as a medical tech, who like um, a medical engineer who could uh, fix everything. By far the most useful person <laughs> on the ground. And uh, so we went there with the intent to be able to teach the local surgeons how to do laparoscopy. When you hit the ground, you realise how many hurdles that you come across. Yes, the local surgeons were amazing and motivated and very, very talented for what for the facilities that they've got. Uh, but like, you know, hurdle one, we couldn't get CO2. Um, and uh, to transport pressurised gas is actually more difficult than what we thought. It has to transport by road, but the area where we're at, at you know, the, the the ability for a truck to get in was not that easy. And so it took a few days before we could even get one, you know, uh, cylinder of CO2. Wow. Other things were like the ventilator, because the one thing about laparoscopy is that you have to do paralyzed anesthesia because you have to relax the muscles so that you can fill up the belly. Mm -hmm. um, and so that requires a ventilator so that, you know, they can, you can breathe with the patient while they're paralyzed and being able to monitor them. Now, none of the stuff that was there actually worked. So our first few days was actually going from hospital to hospital to look through all the donated gear to see if we could plumb together a ventilator that worked, uh, which eventually, uh, as I said, my niece is uh, very talented. He went around and picked up, you know, bits and pieces here and there. And then all of a sudden, the last hospital we went to, there's a brand new donated ventilator sitting in the corridor under a piece of plastic because no one knew what it was. No. So at least we could pilfer that sort of thing and then, you know, various tubes and lines so that we could give, give them. Well, so first thing we had to do was actually give them the machines that actually worked because you can't teach anything if, if you don't have a machine that works. Right. And then it was down to teaching. So my anaesthetist taught the anaesthetic techs. And so they don't have anaesthetists over there. They have um, mostly their, their nurse. Uh, anaesthetists that have done a year of anaesthetic training and our guy had done it about 20 years ago and um and so they they have really practical knowledge they can put a patient to sleep they can wake a patient up they don't know why or certainly our guy didn't know why and so when you started to talk about paralyzed anesthesia it became actually quite tricky to teach him you know when like when do you extubate a patient? Like we ask them at the moment, you know, so when do you extubate the patient? And he goes, oh, you know, if the patient's bucking and kicking, you know, they obviously don't want the tube, so you pull the tube out. And we said, so what happens if the patient doesn't do that? Oh, we send them to the ward and the family bags them until they do. Wow. wow. It's very different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're like, oh. <laughs> so my ethnicity has spent a lot of time trying to teach how to do a basic, the sorts of things that you need to do to keep a patient alive, to keep a patient alive and wake a patient up and pull their breathing tubes out. And so he actually had by far the harder task than what I did. Um, I went to teach, you know, I, th there was three local surgeons in the hospital that I was at, but uh, Elvis being Elvis, well, uh, he's a surgeon on the ground, <laughs> incredibly motivated. He just invited everyone. And what started as a, look, I'm going to take you through some basic skills while we're waiting for the CO2. There were like 30 people in the room and I was basically running a full, you know, skills course that we run here in Australia. Um, 
but we had to make all the equipment that that we uh, to use. So literally, I had well, this a poor runner for me. I was like, so we need a, a board like this with about thirty nails, and he'd run off and get it. We'd kind of make make something so that people could learn about tension and things like that. It's like, so I need a box of rubber bands, <laughs> and off he'd run off again. And we, you know, I, I spent the morning, you know, through, going through the rubbish, actually trying to work out how to create an abdominal wall model so that we could do some safe abdominal entry. And, you know, I had these boxes with foam and a blown up glove as a balloon and, and things. So, so we made it work. And can I just say, as students, having taught, you know, many people, these guys were the most motivated students I've ever had. I only ever had to say something once and they'd be working at it and working at it and working at it. We got to about 6 p.m. and I was like, oh, I don't have anything more. I have not made any more models. I, and they go, what do we do next? What do we do next? And we'd been going all day. So that, that was, it, was, it was really fun to see people, you know, really take on a new skill with such keenness to, to learn. It, it was actually really good. So we ran that day and then the next day we did a um, like a, a, tri a, a demonstration case essentially. So we, we sort of showed with basically the local surgeons essentially working as our registrars um, how to do you know, a, a case or you know, what sort of things can be done laparoscopically. And then our last day there, we actually let them do a case on their own. So with us sort of standing unscrubbed at, uh, at background, making them do everything from start to finish to, to make sure that what they were doing is safe. Because again, this trip was only a week long. And so there was, you know, to try and get them to that was, uh, we thought actually, you know, they had done incredibly, incredibly well uh, to get that way. And after probably about a month after we'd come back to Australia, Elvis had done a gallbladder, um, had done a number of appendixes, a bunch of you know, diagnostic laparoscopies. About three months later, he'd done an APR. He, and and he go. was just pushing it. It was fantastic. And he'd send me a photo going, hey, Karina, look what I've done here. It, it was a very proud mummy moment. <laughs> I'm sure it must have been very rewarding seeing all that hard work going into it and getting those sort of results. That's what keeps me going back, I think. Mm. And also, too, it's it's funny how you describe going there, having pretty much zero resources, looking through the rubbish, trying to find models and rubber bands and stuff to teach these people the skills. And I think many people in our audience listening to this would be wondering, like, honestly, that kind of feels like how it is being a medical student or a trainee trying to get access to skills like you have to learn how to do things like robotic surgery. Like you mentioned, it's good with the Da Vinci because you've got the side console where the fellow can sit in and see what you're doing. But that's a long way away for many people. And as Anna said, and you were saying, like it's a thing that's going to come top down. Um, the, the fellows have to learn, then the registrars. And unfortunately, the last people that are going to receive this knowledge are going to be people like the medical students and, and the, the interns and stuff. What things can we do, even like innovative things like you were describing, going through the trash and finding models and hodgepodging stuff together? What, what kind of stuff can we do right now to prepare us for the future? Oh, there's a tough question. Because um, I reckon the future, by the time you guys become registrars, will have changed so much. And I don't know what the scene's going to look like, um, you know, even ten, in 10 years' time. Certainly, I guess as a medical student, for me as a medical student, because I always had an interest in surgery, I did want to 
always get my hands dirty. Uh, I, I wanted to see whether I had what it took to do what I wanted to do. Um, the probably one of the early things that I, I did is that you know my university had a, a dissection competition, so where uh, you know it was a cadaver dissection competition, and you know I was thinking that oh at least I get to handle tissues and see if I can do it, see if I've got you know steady enough hands. So I guess that's the sort of things I started early up, but gosh I don't think we do cadavers. Your your accessibility to cadavers now is very limited. A lot of, I think, for technical skills now, we've got a lot of uh, simulation and we've got um, sort of a lot of trainers and models. And so that's certainly an availability that you do have, although I don't know, I don't know where you are. We've got a sim centre in at Royal Brisbane, which I think, you know, uh, anyone actually has access to. So you, there's lap trainers there, there's uh, colonoscopy trainers, there's all sorts of trainers there. The robot itself actually has a simulator on the back. So honestly, if you're in the room and you want to have a play on it, um, between cases, I mean, I tell this to my registrars as well, between cases, jump on the simulator and just use it. There's no reason why you can't. Okay. Um, you just need, uh, so the, uh, the DaVinci people will set you up an account and then you can actually at least go through all the, all the basic skills of, of using uh, the robot. And end of the day, it's, you just need to work out how to get the machine to work. So certainly, I mean, you know, I, uh, I, that's one thing that I would do for as a student. And as a student, you want to get into theatre as much as you can. You want to see what's there. You want to see what's going on and also be available for when, you know, someone goes, hey, look, you know, can you stick a catheter in or do you mind scrubbing at the table? We need an extra set of hands. And I think getting to the table is one way as a student, you know whether or not this is what you want to do because you're actually there. And you're actually there. You're actually part of it. You're part of the team, and it's something you like or you don't. I think. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, so, so I mean, that's probably the probably the one thing I definitely say for medical students at the moment. If you want to get any exposure, you need to be there. Need to be as keen as Elvis. Thank, thank you for sharing with us all of this about Daisy and, and the robotics um, that you've been involved with. If you were to give our our audience members, medical students and young doctors alike, one piece of advice. What would that be? I mean, the one thing that I guess for me that has always pushed me to go further is to think outside of the box. Um, don't accept what's already there. See what you can do to make it better. Um, and that would probably go for everything. I mean, my knee-jerk reaction was always, you know, about surgery, you know, which part of surgery I find the most difficult. How do I make that easier? Is there anything I can do to change to make it easier? But I mean, it goes for everything. You know, if if you see a problem, think outside the box to work out how to fix it. I think that's what's going to push the individual along a long way, and that's what will uh, push the art of surgery along a long way as well. Well, we can definitely see that from your career with the, you know, recognizing the issue that all the limitations that lap instruments have in, in, in obese patients and with robotics and then in PNG, the Elvis method, <laughs> looking through the trash yeah. to find some sims and stuff? Well, I, I guess, yeah, yeah. I mean, you just got to work with what you've got, don't you? So, um, well, yeah. oh, thank I don't you. know. I don't know. No, yeah. that was great. That was fantastic. I think that's a really practical piece of information and advice for medical students. And we're always we're always on the hunt for that. So um, thank you for sharing that. And thank you again for joining us today on Behind the Scalpel. Thank you for the invitation. 
hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Scalpel. See you next time, either on our next episode or at one of Sergio's upcoming events.